there's lessons to be learned, not just for Buffalo politics, but just the broader progressive movement. Um, so I wanted to start with, you know, India Walton, I think a lot of people who might have just top line looked at it like, oh, she won the primary, so uh, she'll probably win the general. Uh, and maybe just weren't paying attention on the ground, didn't know all the intricacies of, well, yes, she won the primary, but the the current the current mayor kind of just gave it to her, like didn't actually campaign. Not that she didn't work hard for it or and it was still a, an accomplishment for her to win, but she basically had to run two primaries. I mean, the general election was just a redo of the primary only with the mayor actually campaigning and money flooding in for that mayor from big business, from the, from the real estate, uh, who's who are the real, real estate developers and Republicans. So can you kind of talk mm -hmm. about that dynamic where like, yeah, she won the primary and that was a score for the left, but the general was basically her rerunning the primary only with the, with the mayor full throttle campaigning against her and all the money that poured in against her. Yeah, you know, I think, um, unfortunately, I'm cursed with uh, with a long lifetime of uh, Buffalo roots and, uh, and in sports, that's typically a curse. But I, I kind of depress that sports analogy a little bit more and real ones will know this. Um, India Walton's loss is kind of our wide right as far as the left. You know, this is with coming within a hair's breadth of victory and just completely missing, you know, a gimme field goal. Um and I think that the struggle here is that a lot of folks that aren't familiar with the dynamics of Buffalo, which really is, I think, one of the last genuine machine cities in the United States um, in the kind of classical sense, because I think that there are definitely, you know, political machines that operate, but not in kind of like the old school kind of electoral machine kind of way. And that definitely is how Buffalo operates. And, you know, I've been... Um, I've been personally waiting for Byron Brown to go down for well over a decade. Um, I think that there are a couple of things that we highlighted that are a little bit easy to miss if you don't really know the context uh, that deeply. Um, and also, I think some of the unfortunate kind of warning signs that we highlighted. Um, Walton definitely, I mean, ran an incredible primary campaign and realistically, Brown has had a lot of primary uh, primary challengers and election challengers, and this was the first, what I would say, credible threat he's ever faced. Um, they actually ran field. They ran a movement candidate that had connections in the community, that had um, a lot of energy from grassroots activists that have kind of seen the um, kind of the, the fruits of neoliberalism in Buffalo, that have seen that the so-called, you know, um, development of Buffalo really has not benefited um, working class Buffalo equally because the poverty rate is um, pretty much exactly what it was uh, in 2010. Even while they're trumpeting this so-called, you know, revitalization, um, it's not a revitalization enjoyed by everyone. Uh, it's really a revitalization for the middle class and for the wealthy. Um, and so she managed to, to run a real campaign with a lot of real grassroots enthusiasm and realistically Brown um, didn't take it seriously. And that's not to say that that's the only reason she won, but she definitely benefited from the fact that Brown, like a lot of entrenched incumbents who have won, you know, upset losses to progressive challengers, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Joe Crowley or Elliot Engel, 
um, she benefited from him kind of being a little bit asleep to the actual threat. Um, the problem there, I think, is that unlike a lot of places, especially New York City, where you do have a pretty robust kind of left-wing infrastructure, um, you know, whether it's DSA or Working Families Party, which realistically doesn't exist as a credible um, electoral force in Western New York, um, union members may vote on the WFP ballot line, but they really don't have any clout the way they do in downstate New York or, um, you know, places like the Capital District. And so basically you had the surprise upset at the highest kind of like city office, like the first socialist to have a credible, uh, you know, credible chance of winning executive power in a city of that size in a long, long time. And they didn't have the infrastructure um, to be able to really kind of put together a machine that would allow them to continue that momentum into the election once Brown had kind of clued into the threat and had made the decision not to uh, concede the election. Um, and realistically, there just isn't that much progressive or left-wing infrastructure in Buffalo. It, it just isn't there. Um, there are well, a lot I wanted, of reasons for I wanted, that. I, but, wanted to add, I wanted to add yeah. also, because something I was seeing on the ground and I've seen elsewhere, there's not... I mean, bottom line, the establishment and the financial tentacles, there is widespread organization uh, for corporate candidates, whether it's in Akron and Cleveland, where Nina Turner was just flooded with money. Not the only reason, she, not the only reason she lost, but a, a, a major reason, uh, whether it's in Buffalo, wherever. But there's not that core race to race uh, progressive infrastructure, you know, technically our revolution was kind of sort of aiming to be that. Uh, when I say infrastructure, I mean to help with uh, not just the, the the funding, but the canvassing, uh, the direct marketing, the polling, you know, that kind of thing. There's not that. So when, to me, when I saw India Walton running, there were two issues. A, Byron Brown had the business elite, the real estate elite, the media which just being there for a week, it was very clear the oh, media yeah. was the media was in the tank. Uh, oh, yeah. Byron Byron Brown and giving him significant deference in, in just pretty much every broadcast, act, yep. almost acting like there wasn't even a primary and that she wasn't the Democratic nominee. Absolutely. Uh, but I also wanted to zero in because your piece kind of talked about that <laughs> she ran as a movement candidate in the primary, and uh, you know strong messaging of kind of just soaking it. Socking it too, the business elite, uh, you know, changing the game in terms of not handing out contracts to real estate developers. But then when she won and Brown started, you know, seriously challenging in the general election, she kind of tempered that and kind of, I, I mm -hmm. wouldn't say completely walked it back, but kind of uh, underscored, you know, didn't talk about that she's a socialist that much. She didn't talk about, um, you know, she kind of, tried to make herself a little bit more palatable to the business elite. So to me on a broader scale was that, I mean, she lost by 17 points. So there's gotta be more than one reason, but right. was that a mistake? Should she have just ran the same campaign in the general that she ran in the primary? Yeah. You know, I think that, and you know, it's, I think that you're right that there are a lot of reasons, but I don't think that she did herself any favors by kind of moderating that message because one of the things that kind of was continually, um, I couldn't quite figure out what was happening is that the, um, 
there was a lane open for her to court labor union support over the summer. Um, they were really kind of holding back from confirming that they were behind Brown with the exception of the building trades, which they were going to be in the tank for Brown uh, no matter what. But there was a lane available, and I think that there was a way to connect some of her more progressive message to the concerns that a lot of unions have. Uh, because realistically, you know, the neoliberal program has, especially for public sector workers, just, you know, um, created carnage for them. And, you know, I, I think that there is a way to, one, take that message and push it to some of these unions um, that would have been appealing to them, but also, you know, push unions to maybe behave a little more progressively than they historically have in Buffalo, which I think is a win-win for both labor and for the left. Um, and that just never happened. I mean, she really kind of backed off of it. And, you know, it, there are a lot of um, ready-made narratives available about charter expansion, which, you know, would have solidified her support from Buffalo Teachers Federation, which ended up, um, even though they endorsed her in the primary, ended up uh, not endorsing her for the general election. They stayed out of it. Um, and then also appealing to municipal workers that realistically, you know, the one of the things that happens because of a lot of this development that has tax abatements is you have huge development that's stressing municipal infrastructure, but you have no money to actually, you know, pay for the fact the added stress on the municipal infrastructure. And so you have municipal workers um, that are stressed. They've had insufficient wage increases. They're dealing with a crumbling infrastructure. And yet, you know, you're handing out all of these um, deals for developers that are just increasing the pressure over and over. And so there were ways to connect these issues, but if she had embraced the message that helped her run, uh, win the primary, but instead she decided to back off of those things and try to kind of um, ease the minds of small business owners, of property developers, um, really to her detriment. I mean, Buffalo Teachers Federation never explicitly said what caused them to uh, not endorse her for the general election. And I would imagine it, there's no single factor, but it did come after she went to went in front of business leaders and said that she supported school choice and that, you know, she was, um, she didn't really have any problem with charters. And that was, that was their big issue. That was why they backed her originally and she backed off of it. And right. so I think that that is kind of the struggle is that realistically the infrastructure that's going to help you win in Buffalo is organized labor. And there was, she was never going to get a majority of the unions, but she could have gotten, I, I want to say she could have gotten more, but I think that it would have required her to stay on her message and actually connect that directly to the issues they're facing. And I think that by kind of just kind of backing off of that and trying to, you know, reassure uh, capital that now nah, I'm not a threat, um, it, it really just didn't do her any favors. There's one thing that, to me, progressives just refuse to say in their messaging, uh, and that is corruption. I mean, India Walton kind of vaguely, I, I saw it in tweets, kind of allude to mm -hmm. that the mayor is corrupt. But in debates, no. Uh, in the, the, if there were television ads or digital ads, progressives from Bernie to Nina, they have a lot of consultants telling them, positive, you know, run a positive campaign mm -hmm. on the issues. And that's great. But the truth is there is a through line to why there's such mm -hmm. a lead problem in Buffalo. There's a through yeah. line to why streets, uh, you know, uh, certain parts of, and 
broaden it from Buffalo to Cleveland to Pittsburgh to Milwaukee to Flint to Detroit. Why it's a tale of two cities. Why the downtown in all these areas are wonderful, great restaurants, great bars. Then you drive 15 minutes, mm -hmm. it looks like Fallujah in some areas. Right. No disrespect. Why is it that uh, that why are certain parts? Why are there two cities or three cities within one city? Why are there such underinvestments and total uh, just ignoring whole communities and whole problems? Well, because you have mayors that are legally, technically legally uh, corrupt, <laughs> that they right. are selling out, selling out your interests to grease the pads of their donors, to grease the wallets of uh the real estate developers to you know maintain power and patronage systems and to me byron brown i mean to the letter of the law he's been investigated so mm -hmm. ha so have uh his cronies in, in buffalo the current mayor but there seems to be a real hesitance among whether it's india walton uh whether it's pramila jayapal and aoc and bernie to just call call it what it is and people could say, well, people don't want that. Well, the truth is negative campaigning works. It just does. Mm -hmm. Bernie, people don't remember. Bernie didn't necessarily call Biden corrupt. He kept calling him my friend. But what he mm -hmm. did do, people don't remember, Bernie was closing the gap among older voters, which was unheard of. Bernie, that was his oh, kryptonite, yeah. older voters, by just attacking Biden on television, on social media, on trying to privatize social media, uh, privatize uh, social security. Yep. And, and the ads were pretty negative. So I wanted to ask you, would she have won? Who knows? But do you think if she would have in debates said, hey, the reason uh, we have such a lead problem is the current mayor, instead of investing in fixing it, has invested in beautifying downtown and enriching real estate developers. Uh, and, and that mm -hmm. kind of messaging, the fact that the transportation system don't work, the sewer systems don't work, uh, youth centers are closing down. It's because he is making a moral choice to enrich X, Y, and Z. Do you think that messaging? I mean, obviously the media would attack her for mm -hmm. it, but the media is going to attack you regardless. Is is that something that progressives should consider? Yeah, and you know, I think that realistically, there was zero downside to her uh, for her to do that. You know, I think that I don't necessarily agree with exactly the strategic choice made uh, choices made in a campaign like Nina Turner's, but she has to kind of thread the needle on going on offense while being portrayed as anti, you know, Joe Biden, as you know, just uh, someone that's not going to back the president. Byron Brown really was, at least in public, what was happening behind the scenes is a different question, but at least in public, he was isolated. He had no support from the local uh, establishment with the exception of common council members. Even the county party had realized that, look, this is more heat than we can handle to openly back him. And even, you know, ham-fisted attempts by the state party to kind of um, chip away at Walton backfired so spectacularly that people like Chuck Schumer were backing India Walton. So she realistically was not going to burn any bridges with the broader kind of Democratic Party or Democratic machine. And she wasn't going to alienate Democratic-based voters by just relentlessly attacking Byron Brown, who has over a decade of well, well-documented corruption issues. Everyone around him has gone down with federal charges on corruption. He's managed to avoid it. But realistically, every single person in Buffalo 
knows that he's corrupt. Their willingness to tolerate that, people have different willingnesses to tolerate that, obviously, but everyone knows he is. And the thing is, she really just kind of danced around that issue. She definitely mentioned it, but there's so much there and it's such a clear line of attack that was available to her with really no risk. And it just really went underexploited. So I think that you're absolutely right. Negative campaigning does work. You have to define the opponent and you have to define why they're unacceptable, why their vision is unacceptable, why their approach is unacceptable and why yours provides something better. And that I think was what she really struggled with was, um, you know, one, defining what is Byron Brown's Buffalo. It's Byron Brown's Buffalo. What is it? How is it not meeting the needs of the community there? And what is India Walton's Buffalo? And that's the needle she just never really threaded well enough. Um, I don't know if that would have been enough for her to win, but I, I have to believe that that would have at least made um, the final results much, much closer than they were. And before we move on to the strikes, we should say, I mean, silver lining, I guess you could say, and I think you tweeted as much. Listen, this is this is a mayor that's been in there for 16 years and she got 41% with the media completely against her with, um, I mean, I mean, we shouldn't discount Republican money was flooding in uh, to uh, Mayor Brown. Uh, I mean, to me, uh, essentially, from what I saw and heard, um, she was not giving the deference as the Democratic nominee from the media. Um, so, I mean, there's no moral victories, but it seems to be a building block for progressives that she did have a strong volunteer base. Um, she did make strategic mistakes, which we've talked about. She had messaging mistakes and still got 41% of the vote. So, you know, a couple mm. different decisions uh, next time. Maybe it's India Walton running again. Maybe it's not. Uh, but, you know, that's better than, you know, getting, getting uh, you know, 20% of the vote, uh, getting 41% among a, a entrenched incumbent Democrat, uh, to me, is a good starting point. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to a couple of labor folks that are from Buffalo about the um, about the election. And I think that one of the things that we were really waiting to see, because we see a potential here, because this is something that could create an infrastructure and change the conversation in Buffalo in a way that um, would be seismic for the city. I mean, we're realistically talking about the potential for a viable left in Buffalo, which has not been the case uh, probably since Vietnam. I mean, that was really the last kind of upsurge of local level activism was during the Vietnam War. Um, and, you know, we we're kind of waiting to see, is this going to be built upon? Are people going to take seriously that we need to build some kind of infrastructure so the next race goes differently, whether it's running for common council or running for the county legislature? And I actually just saw it was within the past couple of days, India Walton is actually bringing folks together uh, from the campaign to do organizing training. And that exactly is exactly what needs to happen. So I think that that's a really encouraging sign that, and she said as much when she won the primary, that the miss mission was not just to beat Byron Brown, it was to build an infrastructure that would allow competition, not just in the city of Buffalo, but throughout the county. And whether or not she won, she's still doing that. And I think that really is a silver lining that folks um, it's not a moral victory. It's a base for building power. 
and you don't necessarily need to win every single election, um, provided that you have a clear understanding of what is it going to take to help you win the next one. You know, the moral victory, you know, that's kind of meaningless in the final equation, but you can build you can build kind of the pathway to the next victory even when you're losing, provided that you look at it as, okay, what went wrong? What went right? How do we actually change the uh, change this next time? And I think the really encouraging thing is that Walton seems to be doing exactly that. But I wanted to ask you, obviously, strikes to your beat. This is a, a really, really major union drive. I think it's different than Amazon because I think Starbucks is kind of caught flat-footed here, mm-hmm. and they've just been kind of flailing, uh, as as some of that interview uh, mentioned, flooding stores with new workers, which is packing the stores. Um, flooding stores with new workers and executives to kind of disrupt the, the actual momentum of the workers that are for the union there. Um, where do things stand now? Because, you know, I believe it was yesterday, the day before Starbucks has filed to basically block that election from moving forward. So a little bit of context that um, I think is really important for understanding the Starbucks drive that I think really does put them in a key position to win Um is that a couple of years ago, I think uh, two, three years ago, um, the same work uh, union that uh, Workers United, which is an SEIU affiliate, uh, it's actually the Rochester Joint Board of Workers United that's organizing with Starbucks workers, organized another Western New York chain of uh, coffee shops called Spot, which was really kind of a groundbreaking campaign because um, you really don't have these kinds of coffee shop unions or really unions in kind of any food service um, kind of retail like uh, environment like that at all. Um, And they actually managed to organize the entire chain in Western New York, uh, which, you know, there are a lot of uh, spot locations, I think three, four, I I would have to check in the city of Buffalo. Um, And so really, I think that's some interesting context that they had already taken on this kind of fight in exactly this kind of workplace and had won. Granted, not against as big a corporate giant as Starbucks. Um, so there's some credibility there and some background there. Um, and also just kind of a, a general um, surge of kind of labor unrest in organizing in Western New York in general uh, that this kind of really builds on, I think. Um, and so I think that's really important kind of context to understand. It really has kind of gone um, unexamined that um, this is not the first uh, coffee shop chain in Buffalo uh, to organize, uh, even though that is an extremely rare target for uh, unions to organize nationally. The only other example I can think of recently um, on a multi-store level uh, is really Colectivo, which uh, was a very, very narrow victory for the union. Um, so, I mean, really, a lot of the groundbreaking work um, organizing in this kind of space uh, was done in Buffalo a couple of years ago, and they're building on that momentum uh, with the Starbucks campaign. So. Uh, and actually, StrikeWave was one of the only outlets to report on the original spot uh, coffee organizing campaign. So um, I really think that one of the interesting things, um, and this is a little bit inside baseball for like a lot of union observers, um, one of the things that's really important to kind of really figure out where a campaign is at as far as um, what kind of strength it has is how many workers are willing to go on camera and say that their boss sucks. 
And I think that one of the things in that interview, uh, that mashup that you showed and has really kind of uh, been uh, present throughout the Starbucks campaign is a lot of workers are more than willing to go on camera, you know, go on social media, say exactly what the boss is doing. I mean, really, no sooner does Starbucks do something in one of these stores than one of the workers tweets about it. It's amazing. And I think that's really something that you often don't see that is really an important sign that this campaign really has some legs. Um, and I think that one of the things that um, with this challenge uh, issued by Starbucks is that realistically, and this gets into the really inside baseball of these kinds of organizing campaigns, is that unless the National Labor Relations Board changes course, um, they're not going to block the election. They're going to still issue the ballots. What will likely happen is that they'll impound the ballots after the election occurs, and they'll deal with the challenge to whether or not the ballot should have been issued to begin with. Um, and there's this used to be kind of like an inside procedural baseball thing that unions and employers would use called a blocking charge, which would block the election from occurring. And ironically enough, uh, the Trump Labor Board uh, did away with blocking charges um, over the course of the Trump administration. So realistically, what's going to happen is um, the chances are that um, the election will proceed um, unless, you know, again, the Labor Board may be changing course. I haven't seen anything today on that. Um, they'll deal with the objections. And realistically, what Starbucks is trying to do is generate as many procedural delays as many, um, you know, reasons to challenge the results as humanly possible with the intent of either A, avoiding unionized stores or avoiding as many unionized stores as they can, and B, um, really kind of running out the clock on the next stage of organizing, which really never gets reported on and is really one of the biggest struggles is after you've organized a union, you have to negotiate a contract. And the longer they can drag that out, the more likely it is that they'll avoid a union ever getting a first contract. And so a lot of this is really kind of Starbucks playing a very standard strategy of, quote unquote, union avoidance. Um, but I think that one of the really encouraging things is that um, workers seem very well organized. They seem very aware to the games that Starbucks is playing. It's not working. And really, I think the decision that they were able to secure that allowed them to vote site by site really puts them in a strong position that even if they don't win every single store, chances are they're going to get their foot in the door. And that I think is going to be the thing that's going to be crucial for the union is how many stores can we win and how much of a, you know, um, foundation does that give us to really kind of um, push and, you know, build a campaign to actually get that contract. And it's really difficult to, it's surprising. I mean, obviously, this has gotten national attention, but in my opinion, it's gotten nowhere near enough national attention. This is as important as the Amazon election. It's a smaller group of workers, but when you're talking about the task that labor needs to really kind of, um, you know, organize workers on the scale it needs, this would be cracking into this kind of like retail service food industry in a way that has not happened at all. Mm. It would be the first real union of that sort in that sector of the economy, which is a huge sector of the economy. And so it's really impossible to, it's really impossible to, um, 
to kind of um, oversell how important this is. Um, and if they win and win big, it really is going to be a potentially seismic change in the landscape for organized labor. And I also think, you know, connecting the electoral to this, uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, progressives uh, that are dejected electorally uh, and feel it's all rigged. So, you know, obviously the political system is a Herculean, uh, Herculean mountain to overcome, especially the corruption, uh, the two-party duopoly. But I think if Starbucks workers, even in one store, are successful at forming a union with the caveat that the next step that doesn't really get a lot of attention is the the heart, the just the the mountain of getting that first contract. Uh, who knows what that is going to cause in terms of a domino effect uh, for other uh, major corporate corporate workers, uh, you know, trying to organize, trying to form a union, particularly in restaurant hospitality that for a long time, uh, there's been, you know, scarce efforts uh, at unionizing in, in that industry. Yeah. And, you know, I think connecting it to the electoral is exactly right. And this is, you know, I, I may be one of the few people that has kind of been maybe um, screaming in the wilderness about this for a couple of years now. But realistically, um, there's a hard limit to what you can accomplish um, electorally from a progressive perspective without a strong militant labor movement. And if you look at any country with any scrap of social democracy um, to say nothing of anything more, you know, more than social democracy, or if you look at any scrap of social democracy that we had in the United States, it was with a strong organized labor movement behind it. That's what's necessary to be able to secure the kind of things that we want to secure. And so what we're seeing now, I think, is the hard limits of what we're able to accomplish, um, given the kind of landscape, the power dynamic, you know, the political terrain writ large, not just electorally, but the different players that influence electoral politics that decide what the outcomes are. We've reached a lot of the limit of what we can accomplish as progressives or, you know, the left. And the only way to change that calculus uh, in a way that advantages us is to actually build the labor movement. And what we're seeing is the sign of a level of um, a fight back that really hasn't been present um, in quite some time. Um, even if the scale of strikes still isn't quite up to what it was um, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think that what you, to really kind of understand what's different about this moment is you have to look at what the strikes are about. A lot of strikes 15 years ago, they occurred frequently, but they were all defensive. If you look at, you know, I live in central Pennsylvania. Um, if you look at Pennsylvania or in Western New York, for that matter, a lot of these strikes were basically defensive strikes to avoid the offshoring of jobs. They were agreeing to concessions to try to avoid a plant closing down. They were, um, you know, really on the retreat. These were not, you know, these were not offensive strikes. And what you're seeing right now with uh, unions uh, like UAW and John Deere is that workers are actually demanding to undo all of those concessions. They're actually going on offense um, in a way that really hasn't um, hasn't happened in, well, um, ever, <laughs> really. I mean, it, it just hasn't happened. And so, and that's the really astonishing thing about John Deere workers voting down the second tentative agreement is 
even though there was a lot of progress in the second tentative agreement that improved on where things are at right now, they really said, no, that's not enough. We're, we're not doing this piecemeal. We're, we want to actually get back to where we were. And they're taking a hard line on that. And that's really, I mean, I think we have to be um, cognizant of how, you know, how, um, how rigged it kind of is against success for workers in those uh, kinds of fights, but also understand that, you know, we're seeing kind of a level of uh, pushback that is really unprecedented um, since, you know, organized labor began to decline in the late 60s and 70s. And so there's something to build here, but it can't just be the strikes of already organized workers. It takes things like organizing these Starbucks workers. And so there really is an opportunity here, I think, to as, as dejected as we could be about the electoral, I still feel pretty positive about the future of the left and progressives of Buffalo, because if you look back over the last three years, it's been a constant, you know, uh, churn of strikes organizing. There's a sense of workers really, really pushing for more in Buffalo. And the fact of the matter is people like Byron, Byron Brown can't deliver that Buffalo. And so realistically, I think that if we look at it really from the ground level up um, and we really prioritize accordingly, um, there's still a ton of opportunity. It's just not going to look like, you know, winning a congressional election in Ohio necessarily. It's going to look like organizing shops in Buffalo.